Welcome to the Credible Nerds Podcast. My name is Justin, and today we have a special episode for you. There was a release party for Brandon Sanderson's latest Cosmere book, Rhythm of War. That was back in November of 2020. I believe we discussed it on a podcast around that time, and so we were able to go to that release party. In the past, it's been uh, in person, everybody gathered together uh, and get you know, just hang out with the fans, have a good time. Uh, But this past one due to COVID, it was just a virtual video streaming release party. So it was a little different. And while I did enjoy, you know, being there in the comforts of my own home and, you know, in November it can get cold out here in Utah. So we were happy to be able to to be inside and just in our comfy chairs watching it. Um, But we did miss the, the camaraderie that you get at these parties. We've been to most of them, if not all of them. And I think we've been to all of them. I can't remember one that we've missed. But um, so we didn't get to see our friends, fellow fans. Uh, we weren't there to participate in all the, the contests and the the giveaways and the raffles, you know, all that fun stuff that's there with these release parties. So that was a bummer. Uh, I didn't miss camping out in outside in a tent in November when it's freezing cold, uh, single digits, maybe even below zero or snow. So that was nice. Uh, like I said, we were in our comfy chairs at home. So, But I did uh, record the audio from that release party. Brandon Sanderson does have it up on his YouTube channel as well. So I did want to wait, give him some time to get you know his, his views and his, you know, his, his accolades from that release party since it's his. But I did record the audio and I wanted to put it up on our feed as well because that's something we've done in the past we've gone to these release parties recorded some audio and some video and published it on our page so that's just something we do at these book release parties movie premieres conventions you know something that we here at the credible nerds like to to do for our fans is to present them this information so they can look at it afterwards you know especially with us being here in utah and these uh, cosmere brandon sanderson books are released here and he's based in Utah so he has lots of events around his book releases and so we have the opportunity to go and participate in those and we want to give our fans that opportunity to be a part of that as well. Um, Most of Brandon Sanderson's fans know about this already so they've probably already seen it, listened to it but I'm sure there are viewers and listeners out there to our podcast who don't really know about Brandon Sanderson. So this is a good opportunity for you guys to get a taste, see if that's something you are interested in. Uh, definitely the Credible Nerds recommend any of his books, but I would start with his Cosmere books. Uh, they're really entertaining, fast-paced, um, dynamic, not just your run-of-the-mill fantasy-type books. They're very engaging, very intricate. Um, there's three or four or five series going on at the same time, and they're all intric- intricately linked in ways that you have to kind of study and pick up on the clues as you're reading and figure out, you know, oh, this guy, he's also in this series on a different planet, different world. So you kind of have to research those clues. So it's very engaging is what I'm getting at. Very interesting, very um, dynamic and hours of fun to read, research. Uh, There's all kinds of forums and websites dedicated to his works. So lots of content to look at, read and review. So, definitely recommend it. I would start with Mistborn Era 1. Mistborn the Final Empire, I think is the first book. So check that out. Read his series. You can also check out the Stormlight Archive. 
Uh, this release party was for book four of the Stormlight Archive. You can always start out with uh, book one, The Way of Kings, which is really good as well. So, so this release party was over two hours long, maybe even three. Um, so I broke it up into different parts. This will be part one and look for the, the subsequent parts in different episodes. This is episode 51 of our Credible Nerds podcast. So look for episodes 52 and 53 to continue this, uh, this release party if that's something you're interested in. There were some technical difficulties at the beginning of the broadcast. So I think the first few minutes are missing, but uh, you're not missing anything that important. So it starts off kind of mid-sentence. So that's why it's like that. Without further ado, without further rambling from me, um, here is the audio from his release party for book four of the Stormlight Archive, Rhythm of War. In the various bookstores that you all got your books from. And the other part will be readings. We're actually going to do an extra healthy dose of readings today for reasons I'll explain in a few minutes. But first off, I generally start release parties by letting a room of five to 10,000 people applaud for my team. Um, however, today, all we have here is my team, but I'm going to still give them uh, some thanks for you, so that you guys know that this doesn't just come from me. Uh, we'll start with Adam, who has put together this release party and is, yes. I have, uh, he's probably been through about 20 monsters, as Drinks says he has uh, stressed out about this. It's his first time kind of running a release party, so thank you, Adam. Uh, he's my, my in-house publicist. And also, uh, Kara did quite a bit putting this together and uh, making sure everyone got their books. So thank you to Kara and to her team, which includes Mem and Lex and Michael and a bunch of minions. Um, you can clap for them too. Yes. So watching at home are Peter, my editorial director, and Karen, our continuity editor. So hello, Peter and Karen. Thank you guys so much. And sitting over in the corner, who will be speaking to you a little bit later in the middle of the presentation to give me a break, is Isaac. Isaac Stewart, our art director. He worked with a very talented team of artists, uh, including Ben McSweeney, who's probably watching remotely at the moment, and various other painters who he'll do a lot of introductions to them. I know we have one here with us today, one of our special friends, um, but that is Howard, and or that is Isaac, and Emily, my wife, let's applaud for her. She's the business manager at Dragonstone Entertainment. She has all the things that would, I would probably have to do if she weren't here. And instead, I can just write books. So anything that has to do with taxes or payroll or all of the really annoying stuff of owning a business, she has to do. And I get to stand in front of people and be applauded and then spend the rest of my time telling stories about wizards. So uh, thank you very much to Emily and to my family. Did I forget? Oh, yeah. Did I forget anybody? 
Once I think I forgot Peter, and that, uh, that was not good. So uh, I think we got to everybody. Um, oh, I suppose we can applaud for Kathy. Should we applaud for Kathy? Maybe we should applaud for Kathy. Kathy, Adam's rival, is also Emily's assistant, part-time bird wrangler, uh, part-time child wrangler, um, and doing various odd jobs for us, including working in the warehouse. So um, there is a lot of work that comes, uh, that goes into creating particularly Stormlight books. Uh, we have had kind of a frantic year. Now, I know everyone's had a frantic and strange year. Um, we had the uh, extra stress of trying to get a Stormlight book together on time uh, while all of this was happening. And in some ways, that was good because it meant that I was home uh, rather than traveling the world. But in other ways, it was just one more stressor. So I'm really pleased, uh, and you guys should make sure if you have the opportunity to ever talk to one of them or interact with them online, thank my team because uh, they pushed extra hard to make this happen. We noticed lots of movies getting delayed and lots of video games getting delayed, and we thought when the time comes for the book to come out, our fans are really going to need this. And so we did what we could, and despite dodging a few bullets, we have had it come out on time. So I am very pleased to present to you Rhythm of War. Uh, so it crashed our website. OK. They can see on YouTube. So as long as that's getting propagated, I'm asking Alexis if we can share it on your Twitter and stuff like that. So yes. Just so you're aware. It crashed our website, huh? It crashed our website. Okay. Was it embedded on the website? Is that what was happening? Um, and so, yeah. Well, uh, we probably should have expected that. <laughs> so Alexis, yeah. Alexis is just sending it to the stores, and the stores are going to propagate it. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, right. Well, then, we will give them a few minutes uh, to propagate that. And in the meantime, I am going to take a delaying random question. Um, so can you bring us up a question, Isabel? Just pick one and bring it over. Uh, and we were going to do the Q&As later on, but might as well have me talk about something while we're making sure that everything is getting propagated and things like that. Um, and so, all right, bring it on up so everyone can see it. This is Isabel, our uh, wonderful assistant um, and part-time mini minion. Uh, what is my favorite dinosaur? Um, my favorite dinosaur is Magellan the macaw, <laughs> uh, which is cheating, I suppose. Um, and so if I had to pick an actual favorite dinosaur, I don't know. Uh, this is one of these things that when you have children, it starts to, during their young lives, be very important to them that everyone has a favorite everything. I don't know if that's been the same experience with those of you that have children as it was, as was, was with us, but I'd never had you know, really given much thought, at least not in 40 years or whatever, to my favorite color, but as soon as my kids could figure out that picking a favorite color distinguished one from another, then I had to have a favorite color that was different from the favorite color of each of the children uh, because we couldn't have the same favorite colors. And the same thing has gone on with favorite animals and favorite foods, but I did not end up ever getting asked to pick a favorite dinosaur. Um, I don't think my kids ever really got into dinosaurs to the extent that some others have 
have been. So I would have to say uh, no idea what my favorite dinosaur is, uh, unless dragons count, right, um, which they probably don't. <laughs> so how are we looking there, Adam? We've been giving them some time. Um, is our website uh, have any chance of going back up? Ben hasn't gotten back to me. We have about 1,600 people right now. So 1,600 people. We're several thousand short, huh? Um, yeah. Uh, well, we will figure this out for future times. I just assumed we were sending them the YouTube link also, um, rather than just the page link. But they, we didn't know what that was until, until just today. That's right. So, well, let's do one more question, give people a little bit more time. Uh, what is my favorite art on a Magic the Gathering card? Uh, that one I can answer, because I have a lot of favorite uh, Magic the Gathering card stuff. A lot of the things that I will pick as my favorite will harken back to my youth, right? Uh, if I'm picking a favorite book, it's often one of the favorite books that I read when I was young that got me into fantasy. And in this case, my favorite magic card art is from Vesuvian Doppelganger, which was my favorite card when I was first really getting into magic. For those who haven't played the game, uh, the Vesuvian Doppelganger is a tricky card that copies someone else's thing. Um, and my brother... When he first got into Magic the Gathering, he came back with a pack that had had this giant monster in it that was super cool. It was huge. Uh, it took a lot of resources to summon. <coughs> it was very big and damaging and scary and cool looking. And so I went and bought a pack, and I came back with a little, uh, my rare card was a little assassin. It was a royal assassin. And I thought, he gets this big, awesome, cool card, and I get this little derpy thing, but then, the moment my assassin killed his big awesome thing, um, and he had spent a ton of resources getting it out, and I'd spent a little bit on mine, and then just tapped it to kill his thing, I realized, ooh, this game is tricksy. Um, and so and immediately a demure player was born. I started doing all sorts of uh, black and blue, which are the tricky colors that will do all sorts of things, like you summon a big monster, I've got a copy. And then I kill your big monster, and only I have one now. Um, and I spent way less getting mine than yours, and so that is the sort of thing I played a ton when I was younger, and is the kind of the, um, the way I still enjoy playing Magic the Gathering. How are we looking now, Adam? Have we gained any people? Yeah, we're at about 250. Uh, 2,500, I mean? Oh, uh, we're at about 2,000 now. About 2,000 now? Okay. Out of how many do we have? 10,000 po possible? Uh, like 6,800. 6,800? All right. So, um, I think I will just continue on into the speech part. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, this is the part where I kind of blab at you for a little while. And um, I do this with all of my release parties. I come up with some sort of thing I'm thinking about or whatnot. This time is going to be a little different from other times. Uh, because the thing I was thinking about led very easily into um, something I haven't done before at one of these release parties, but I thought would be very fun. Um, the thing I've been thinking about this time ha is in relation, as they often are, into a question I get asked quite a bit. And in this case, the question that I get asked quite a bit is, if you could go back in time and change one thing about when you were breaking in, when you were trying to become an author, if you could change one thing about that, what would it be and why? And I usually answer this question by saying I would change nothing because I have read that book 
And I know what happens if you go back in time and meddle with the timeline. Either you end up accidentally killing your own grandparents, becoming your own grandparents, or you step on a butterfly and America turns communist, right? Um, these are like the only three good outcomes. Those are the good ones. And so, no, I wouldn't mess with the timeline. But um, that's usually when I'm being tongue-in-cheek. If I actually answer that question honestly, I talk about how I would have wanted to learn to revise earlier than I ended up doing. But that's not what set me thinking this time. What set me thinking was about the idea of opportunity cost. Uh, when people ask me, you know, what would I change? How would I like my career to have been different? Uh, what things do I miss? I've been thinking about opportunity cost a lot lately, particularly because my children are still wrestling with this concept, right? A few, a few weeks ago, we went and did this haunted ski lift thing that they have in the mountains here. It's very fun, I like to do it. Uh, you, know, you get a big uh, thermos of hot chocolate, you sit on the ski lift and then you know, people make weird noises at you as you go up and down. Works very well for when you're social distancing because you're always quite a fair distance away from them. And my son Joel, who's 13, uh, could not decide if he wanted to go or not because he realized he could stay home and um, he could play video games instead. And there was a game he was really interested in playing. And he wrestled with this decision to an extent that was kind of uh, strange to us adults. We're like, come on, just get on, go with us. We're going to the thing. If you want to stay, fine, make the decision, but just make the decision. And he had so much trouble. And I remember that when I was young. I remember that fear of missing out, that idea that I can't have both of these things at once. What is the right answer? And coming to understand that there are a lot of questions <coughs> for which there is no right answer, or perhaps there is no way to know the right answer yet, uh, because, you know, the events haven't happened yet. Obviously, if he started playing his video game, the internet went out and he couldn't play it anymore, he will have wished to have gone on the ski lift. But if he picks the ski lift and then we get in a car wreck, he probably would have preferred to stay at home. But in most cases, there's not a right answer to that question, even after having gone through it. It's just about making the call in the moment. Now, this is not that difficult a concept uh, to, to deal with. We wrestle with this a lot. Uh, as we grow up, it's one of the things that we have to, have to figure out is how to make decisions. And um, for the most part in my life, these, this decision-making process has gotten easier and easier. Uh, I've learned to stop stressing the little questions so much. And if I get order a meal and I don't like it and I wish I'd gotten the next one, well, I'll just chalk that up to next time to order the other thing. But there is one question that the older I've gotten, the more difficult the opportunity cost has become to me. Um, and that question is, what should I write next? This is a very, very difficult question for me nowadays. When early in my career, it was not. It was very easy. I wrote whatever I was excited about, right? Uh, and particularly early in my career, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, I just kind of had to write. It didn't really matter what I was writing. Uh, but these days, I'm coming to realize, you know, that every story I choose to tell basically kills a thousand other ones. And this is growing intimidating. There's nothing 
um, I like more about being a writer than the idea of taking the blank page and making something out of it. People often ask me, what is the most fun part about being a writer? I usually joke, it's the fact that I get to get up at noon and go to bed at four, right? Uh, I really do like that. I am a night owl. But the truth is, one of my favorite aspects genuinely is being able to essentially create something out of nothing. I know it doesn't work with the actual physics, but it feels like I'm combating entropy um, when I am taking a blank page and, uh, you know, completely formless ideas and turning them into a novel. Granted, I'm not actually doing that because I'm creating, increasing the heat in the universe and propelling us ever toward the heat death of the universe, but in my brain I have made something out of nothing. It's like a magic trick, right? Um, the one of the fun things about being a writer and artist is that you could legitimately lock me in a room with a blank uh, notepad, walk away and come back, and then there would be a book uh, and probably a lot of mad ravings, depending on how long you left me. Um, but I really like that about my job. But at the same time, that blank page is intimidating. Not in that the way that it is, I think, for a lot of new writers. The blank page intimidates new writers because they see how much work there is to do. The blank page intimidates me because as soon as I start writing, as I set something to those pages, that means I am locked in to another story. And for the most part, these stories are going to take between six months and 18 months of my life to create. And there's only so many of those one person can do in their life. Um, Life has been kind of hard lately for a lot of us. Things have been really kind of weird. Instead of a massive, cool release party at a convention center, uh, we get to sit here with almost every, well, everyone but me wearing masks, um, having to deal with a release party where technical difficulties are making it difficult, even for the people who wanted to watch us to be able to do that. Um, Life is kind of frustrating these days. And so I was thinking about my talk and about this idea of opportunity costs. And I thought, you know, the thing I really want to do tonight is I want to take a retrospective of my career so far. And I want to talk to you about the books that didn't make it. Uh, multiple books that never got published that I worked on, some of which I finished, some of which I didn't, and kind of use each of these books as a way to talk about how I chose what projects to work on at that point in my life. And we're going to kind of approach four different parts of my career this way. And so the um, first one we'll do in a minute. But we also are going to break these up so I'm not blaming at you the entire time with some questions. So I'm going to have Isabel come over here uh, and bring us our next two questions, which I'll answer before I get into era one of the Brandon career. So, question is, how do you feel about the release of Rhythm of War? Is it different from how you felt about releasing uh, any of the previous Stormlight books? Well, yes, the release party in particular is very different. Um, I will admit I miss the big party. What I don't miss is the fact that Isaac and I usually leave those big parties at around 5 in the morning, having signed straight from like 10 o'clock until 5 a.m. Um, and even doing that, we only get to a fraction of the people who come to the release party uh, because you know we pre-signed the books, but this is for personalizations. And granted, I stay up until 4 o'clock, 
So going to bed at five or six or whatever, not a big deal for me, but man, is that part of it exhausting. Um, and so not missing that aspect of it, though I am missing the enthusiasm of the crowd and being able to see you all and being able to hand you all your books because we're having to deal with shipping. And I know some people are going to get lost and not get there in time. Uh, by the way, Kara, um, someone was watching the, uh, the live, or the, the sped up time lapse of us signing and found a book that I forgot to sign. <laughs> they pointed it out and said, he didn't sign that one. It's one of the ones I drew a picture on, and I didn't drew a signature. So if you get the one I didn't sign, uh, I, didn't, uh, I, didn't, I drew a picture but did not sign, uh, you may send that back to us, and we will sign it and send it back to you. Or you could just ask us to send you another one. We'll figure it out. But sorry, and eagle-eyed person, good job. Um, but regardless, I, I do kind of miss that. I really don't miss the tour. Uh, and so flying around and things like that, this is why I called you guinea pigs, because I think that uh, we are going to be experimenting with this and hopefully be doing something more like this uh, for future releases, probably with a big release party and a large crowd, but also streamed um, uh, with Adam's excellent uh, practice at streaming and things like that around to the world. Um, so. Um, Anything else about the release of Rhythm of War? Um, you know, that is different. Um, we are getting to the near the end of the first arc of the Stormlight Archive. Um, and this book is uh, kind of a different turning point uh, for the series for reasons you'll understand as you're reading the book. Uh, the first three books, which were the Cal and Shalon Dalinar books, uh, were in many ways well, much better formed in my head when I started. And in particular, the last two books had a lot of, of things get changed during the course of the first three books. And so while I'm very confident in the book now, during the beta read, there were, there were just a lot more things uh, that came up than I, was in, that I wasn't anticipating. Um, that happens in everyone, but in this one it felt like there were a few extra ones. So, um, I don't know. I, I feel really good about the book, uh, but man, it was a lot of work. Uh, I think this is, was the most work we've put into a Stormlight book. Um, that, it might only feel that way because we had the Kickstarter going on at the same time. Uh, let's do the other question on the back of that one. Thank you, Isabel. Is there one, uh, only one Sion for every given Aeon? Yes. There is. So, a good ant question. Now, um, there is only one Sion for every Aeon, but um, there are Aeons that you don't know about yet. So, um, so I'm going to move into part one of, uh, of the, the reading group, and I'm going to sit down for this part. Um, and so you can see the the fire going beside me, and I'll be reading from my laptop here in a minute. But first, I want to look back at these early days and kind of talk to you about how I picked projects in the early days of my career. Um, back then, uh, all I knew is that I wanted to be a writer for a living. I wasn't very good at this. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, really, I had no clue. And so I've often said, that the first, one of the first things I did is just write a bunch of different stories in a bunch of different genres. This was really good for me. A lot of writers I know kind of go into becoming a writer thinking they're meant to write one thing. Uh, maybe it's because it's the popular thing, or maybe it's just because that's what their friends are doing. And then they experiment with different genres and find they have real talent in other areas. This happened to Dan Wells, who 
tried writing epic fantasy and it felt you know, like he was pounding his head against the wall, he says, and then he tried writing horror novels and they just worked so much better for him. And so I tried a lot of different things. Um, and so early, this early part of my career, um, I, um, I just wrote. I just, it was more important for me to tell stories than what I was telling. In fact, there's, a, there's an interesting thing about this that I hope that you all get to experience um, someday. And it doesn't have to be with writing a book, but it is, comes down to finishing and doing something you thought was really difficult. Uh, my first book, White Sand, took me three plus years to write. And before that, I had tried writing a novel as a teenager, and it just, I had never finished it. It happens a lot when you're a teenage writer. But something very magical, pun intended, happened when I finished White Sand. Suddenly, this thing that in my head was this really, really difficult task that someday I would accomplish was done. I was a novelist. I had written a novel. It wasn't any good, but that didn't matter at the moment because I had actually accomplished it. And I think the single most meaningful moment in my career was not hitting the New York Times list or things like that, or even, uh, even being uh, called for the Wheel of Time, uh, which would probably take second. The first most meaningful moment was realizing I could actually finish a novel. Um, that changes, at least it changed my life, uh, in ways that I just cannot calculate or explain. And I would hope that everyone has this experience with something. Uh, my wife ran a marathon. And running a marathon feels like one of these impossible things that you know, I could never do. But yet, she did it. And finishing a novel is the same way. As soon as I finished White Sand, my next book didn't take three years. It took six months. Because suddenly, I had moved from a realm of trying this Herculean impossible thing into being someone who had done that already and knew what kind of work and effort it took, and it was quantifiable to me. I actually, you'll find this amusing, the first time I, uh, uh, I got into a steady relationship, um, I had the same sort of emotional feel of I'm like, well, that wasn't actually so hard. I've been stressing about this for years and years and years, getting a girlfriend, and now I have one, and I'm like, wow, I, that actually can happen. And my whole life changed. And from then on, I generally was dating somebody, right? It was no longer this impossible thing uh, that, uh, that you know, could never happen. It was something that could happen. Uh, same thing with the book. And um, so during those early years, my mind really started to flood with possibilities. Once I'd finished that book, once I'd finished White Sand, I'm like, well, what else could I do with this? What else could I write? Uh, what else should I try? And so my early books, um, I wrote two epic fantasies, which were really the same book. I just, White Sand got long enough that I felt like it was an ending and I just kind of ended it. Um, and I wrote a comedy, comedic fantasy in kind of the Bob Aspirin vein. Um, and I wrote two science fiction novels. And I'm going to read um, one of these to you today. Uh, I'm going to read from my fifth novel, uh, which I had named The Sixth Incarnation of Pandora, which is a very weird and clunky title. Um, I was not terribly good at titles back then. Um, but uh, one of the reasons I'm going to read to you this is because I don't think I've ever done a reading from this before in my life, which is kind of cool to think about. 
And another reason I wanted to read to you is there's actually a scene from this. I picked this scene from the book specifically because when I was working on Rhythm of War, I was writing a scene and I'm like, I have written this sometime before. Where was this? Why, how did I, when was this? And I couldn't remember for a long time until finally it hit me. I'm like, oh, of course, it was from uh, Sixth Incarnation. And so um, I'm going to read you the scene that has that same scene. Those of you who are beta readers who've read the book or employees who had it early, um, you'll be able to pick it out quite easily. Um, so what is the sixth incarnation of Pandora? Uh, so uh, this is a story. You may think Pandora the planet because, you know, of the movie. That's not what I was, I was actually going for the myth. Um, that there were, uh, that in this society we had opened up various Pandora's boxes, and this was in philosophy in the far future. The sixth one they'd opened uh, was making uh, people who were immortal. Um, and this was a Pandora's box that they had philosophically opened. And it's a story, it's, I often describe it as a cyberpunk. It's not actually a cyberpunk. It's not a true cyberpunk. It deals with some of those same themes. It has the kind of corporate, corporations in charge and kind of a dystopian future um, and things like this. But it is far future um, and not near future as most cyberpunk is. The story is about an immortal soldier who has been made immortal with this new process, which is still very rare and very expensive to do. And what they, he is basically a one-person army um, with all of these modifications to things and is capable of destroying entire armies on his, his own and is completely indestructible. Um, and uh, I'm going to read to you from chapter one, which does, is not a good chapter for introducing that concept, but um, you know, I, I was still learning how to write. You'll also notice that I did description back in the day, a little bit more uh, uh, differently from how I do it now. I maybe lingered a bit. I maybe had a little bit more of uh, Robert Jordan's uh, influence on me. I actually trimmed out about half the description in this uh, just to make it, uh, make it work. And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you from this for a little while. It has a little epigraph at the beginning, which I thought you guys would find fun because um, you know, I use those quite a bit now, and I didn't earlier in my career. And these, again, this book is unpublished. This is book number five, The Sixth Incarnation of Pandora. From the moment the first primeval Neanderthal picked up a sharp rock and used it to eviscerate his prey, man has sought ways to use his surroundings to augment his own abilities. Not that much has changed over the millennia, or not that much has changed over the millennia. Peg legs have become prosthetic limbs, and spectacles have been replaced with robot cyborg optronic, optronics. But the main ideas remain constant. Displeased with what fate allots us, we bend nature before our will, becoming more than we were intended. Among all of God's creations, only man takes offense at his lowly state. Along with our drive to change ourselves, there comes with a true human, with true human paradoxical form the uncomfortable fear that we have gone too far. Through the ages, we have fabricated horrors to match our increasing supremacy over nature. Monsters, golems, mad robots, and horrors haunt our collective technological unconsciousness. Twisted mixes of flesh and metal, obs obscene misuses of nature and her creations. We push ourselves to be better and better, more in control and dominant. But at the same time, we sweat and worry that this time we have gone too far. We finally have. I am the final step, the ultimate synthesis of what is nat natural and what is profane, one last grand adulteration. I am the culmination of our fears, of Frankenstein's monster for the modern 23rd century. I am without parallel in life or imagination. I am Zellian. I got a lot pithier at making my epigraphs, I feel, um, as time progressed. Uh, chapter one, 
The forest silence was abnormal, almost uncomfortable. Zelian could feel the dew in the air. It hung as an unseen mist around him. Humidity was an unfamiliar companion, and he had to fight the impulse to wipe his brow. A damp, sweat-stained hand would do little good in drying a damp, sweat-stained forehead. He could feel the soft film of water on his skin, coating his entire body, making his fingers both slip and stick as he rubbed them together. Also unfamiliar was the shadow, forest's shadowy illumination. Light he knew, darkness he knew. The forest's unchanging twilight, however, was neither bright nor dark. It seemed to flow rather than shift, live rather than just illuminate. It was neither day nor night. It was light undead. Zelian followed no marked trail. He had left that behind long ago. It was not difficult to move through the brush. Tall trunks stood like jealous merchants, catching the golden light long before it hit the ground. What little light did pass through the formless through was formless and impotent. Few plants could squeeze enough life out of such meager helpings to survive. There were ferns, weeds, and the occasional sapling, but nothing so thick he, so thick he couldn't walk through it without trouble. Occasionally, Zelen reached out to brush a patch of doff, soft, damp, uh, damp earth. It was odd that something native to his home planet would feel so alien to him, but it had been a long, long time since he had seen soil. He continued on, making good time through the realm of the enormous trees and their tiny fungal blooms. He usually only noticed his surroundings that something was wrong. The forest was different somehow. It was pervasive, omnip omnipresent. Even if he closed his eyes, he could feel it around him. When he stepped, he would sense the soft springy loam. With each breath, he drew in new order, uh, drew in the odors of wood, decaying flora, damp foliage, and bitter earth. He'd hear the crackling of leaves and twigs beneath his feet. Not sure how that happens when it's obviously so damp, but you know. The forest was not a setting, it was an experience. There's, uh, there's early Brandon's descriptions for you. No bugs, a voice in his head pointed out. What? Zelian asked, opening his eyes. No insects, Zelian. A forest this size should be brimming with them. They would be too hard to control here, Wire. I know. I just think it hurts the authenticity. You wouldn't say that if you could feel it, Zelian responded, continuing his hike. Well, I doubt that's likely to happen anytime soon. Wire's voice wasn't sarcastic or even depressed. It was simply stating a fact. Wire could never feel the forest, just as he could never feel anything. The entirety of the AI's physical being consisted of a CPO embedded beneath Zellian's left shoulder blade. We're running out of forest, Wire pointed out. Zellian nodded. He could see the tree line now, now where the forest ended. A few moments later, he passed through it, and the world around him transformed abruptly. Instead of soft earth, his foot snapped against rigid metal. He stepped out of the land of half shadows into full daylight. The humidity disappeared, abandoned in favor of a carefully controlled, deliberately comfortable climate. Zellian left behind the canopy of leaves, entering a world where dark space extended forever in all directions. He stood on the edge of a sheer drop-off. The metal pathway that ran around, ran around the forest was only a few feet thick here where he stood. It also bordered the edge of the platform. Zellian looked up. High in the sky, he could see another enormous platform, like the one on which he now stood, a floating continent with, few, with people inhabiting all of its six faces. Beyond the second platform, Zellian could make out the tiny pinpricks of, pinpricks of stars. Looking down over the edge of the cliff, he could see the exact same thing. Hundreds of kilometers below lay the bottom of the platform, and beyond that was nothing. Cold space, eternity. Fall off this cliff, and one could literally fall forever. Said that the platform's builders had tried to make it seem as if one were standing on the surface of a planet, instead of a gargantuan block of metal hanging in the middle of space, a ridiculous distance from any planetary system. They hadn't done a very good job. 
Zellian took one look back at the forest park. Really, it was one of the few places on Sage platform that was dedicated to reminding its inhabitants of their heritage, as if they hadn't intentionally abandoned such things as forests when they moved into the sterile vacuum of space. Remind me to come back here when this project is finished, he asked. Is that a request, Zellian, or are you simply waxing hypothetical? No, really, remind me. Yes, Zellian. Wirewood, compute a likely date and time for the reminder. Zellian turned away from the organic wall behind him and stepped off the cliff. He could feel the fall begin, the plummet that would carry him down along the side of the platform until he entered oblivion. Gravity would dra drag him down or prepared to hurl him into the void. But then it changed. His foot got caught in an unseen force, a pull that altered his momentum. His body followed, collapsing to the arms of the same force. Instead of plunging into space, Zellian swung in an arc around the edge of the cliff, his foot planting itself on the vertical wall below him. He reoriented himself, then pulled his other foot to sit beside its mate. He now stood on the other face of the cliff. What had once been down was now directly in front of him, and it, he turned around and looked down. He saw the space he had left, and it looked like a sheer vertical drop, the forest seeming to sprout from the side of a cliff. The platform's gravity wasn't going to relinquish its grip on Zellian quite so easily. It pulled one down against the platform, no, no matter which direction down happened to be at the time. One could walk on each of the platform's faces and feel as if it were the surface of a planet. I don't see why you have to be so dramatic about that, Zellian, Wire chimed in. Why do you find it so fascinating about, what do you find so fascinating about changing gravitational surfaces? Zellian continued to look over the side of the ledge, then tossed a small pebble over, watching it arc normally in the air for a moment, then change vectors suddenly to fall inward, snapping against the pathway and rolling to a stop at the edge of the forest. Is there anything we haven't mastered, Wire? Zellian responded. What is left to dominate? The very laws of nature bend before us. Where is the excitement in a universe that behaves according to our convenience, warping and changing until it twists to the will of the most fickle species? If you want excitement, you should try piloting a ship through the center of a star, Wire suggested. As far as I know, no one has managed to conquer that realm yet. Maybe I will, Zellian mused. Just make sure you remove my CPU first, Wire said. So there we go. Uh, that is a look at how I was writing um, back 20 years ago. That was from 1999. At least that's what it said um, at the end of the book when I, had, when I wrote, I usually wrote the date that I was finishing it. Um, so the sixth incarnation of Pandora. It is uh, interesting also for me to look back and see which ideas I have thrown into the word chipper and recycled. If you've read Starsight, you'll recognize something very similar to those platforms, um, which stretch back to a short story that I wrote um, uh, called uh, Defending Elysium. And so they showed up um, probably first time here, and then I reused them for Defending Elysium, and then uh, wrote the Skyward series in that same universe. So this is like a, uh, a hypothetical book that could have existed in that same setting. Um, Again, I think nowadays I might, if I were writing a book about a soldier that most of the book is action and explosions, I might have gotten a little faster to the actual action and maybe save the waxing philosophical uh, for another part of the story. Uh, but it is an interesting look back, in particular because uh, this was book number five that I wrote. And I didn't do a lot of marketing those early books in my career, uh, though I did take my second book, Star's End, and I did send it around. The first batch of uh, books I ever sent out was Star's End, which I sent to, to an agent that I had met at a convention 
um, who I later discovered was not really a real agent. It was someone from Denver, and I'm sure they're very nice people, but um, I sent it to them, and it got rejected. But part of me wonders what happened if I would have aggressively been submitting these early books. Uh, is there a universe where Brandon sells Star's End, and uh, then they want another science fiction, so he sells Sixth Incarnation of Pandora, and doesn't start the Cosmere, because the Cosmere starts with Elantris, which was book number six. Though I wrote Elantris not really having the Cosmere in mind, the real development of the Cosmere happened in books called Dragonsteel and Aether of Night, which uh, were unpublished books during that era. Um, so it's kind of interesting to imagine if I had become a science fiction writer instead, what would have happened? Would there have been no Cosmere? Hoyd wasn't in any of these early books. I wasn't doing that back then. Uh, the first appearance of Hoyd anywhere in any of my books is in um, uh, Elantris, where he shows up. Um, and then Dragonsteel, which was his backstory. Um, so it's just interesting for me to think about opportunity cost. We are going to go do a couple more questions. And then I'm going to go into the second part where we'll talk about a different era of my career. And then after that, it's going to be Isaac's turn to entertain you for a little while. So come on up, Isabel. Um, of all the magic systems, would Awakeners be able to uh, most quickly be able to uh, uh, utilize acquiring a Dawn Shard? Rappo! <laughs> I saw this one early on, and I thought you deserved your Rappo. So let's turn that one around. Rappo, for those who don't know, means read and find out. It is a phrase I inherited from Robert Jordan, which means I am not going to tell you right now. It could mean that the answer is too much a spoiler. It could mean that I just want you theorizing on this for a while. It could mean that I haven't decided yet. It could mean that I got stumped by the question and don't want to answer it because I don't want to look dumb. Uh, those are all equal answers. Actually, there's a fifth one, which is the Peter and Karen know the answer to this. It's in the notes somewhere, and I don't want to say until I can open the notes or ask them. So those are all, all valid uh, interpretations of Raffo. Most often it is the I don't want to answer right now because I worry it will spoil things or lock me in too much to things that I want to do in the future. Uh, can a Radiant join multiple orders? Um, this was not done in the past. Uh, or become a squire of a different order. Uh, it is actually not impossible for this to happen. It simply was not done. And if Dalinar became a Lightweaver squire or had the Lightweaver honor blade, could he create through a Char map himself? Um, this uh, is going to depend on factors. It is possible but highly implausible following another highly implausible set of, sequen, uh, uh, of circumstances that would allow him to actually do that, though getting the honor blade would not be as difficult. Uh, let's do one more of those, if you wouldn't mind, Isabel. Um, are any of your characters based on somebody you know? So. A lot of my side characters are based on people I know. This is generally because uh, it's, it's fun to do what we call a Tuckerization, where we take somebody and put them in a, a small bit part in a story just to kind of uh, have a cameo, right? Uh, a lot of horror writers will do this and then murder the person, right? <laughs> Dan kills everybody in Effigy in his books. It's very common. I just have people just get walk-on parts. So Mem is in, uh, you're in the, the third book, right? Uh, so Mem, when you run into Mem, that's Mem's, uh, Mem's cameo. Uh, Bridge 4 is famously made up of a lot of my friends um, and family members. 
Um, so, you know, uh, you will find uh, Layton, who is my friend, Alan Layton, or Scar, who is my friend, Scar. Ethan Scar is dead. Um, and so those I don't quite count as basing a character on someone. It's more like giving a cameo to a friend. Just like if we ever film these things, we will try to get everybody who's in the, uh, in the, the company walk on parts uh, in the movies and things like that. So you can be in the back room and be like, look, there I am. Uh, we'll let Mem carry along a basket of laundry or something like that. Um, and uh, maybe Isaac can be doing a map in the background. Um, but actual based on people, oftentimes I will find some interesting attribute about somebody I know and be like, wow, that attribute spun off and built upon um, to become, um, could become a cornerstone of a character. I don't usually say that I'm basing a character on that person, but people do inspire characters. Uh, the most uh, easiest one to describe would be Serene from Elantris, uh, which was based on my friend, slightly on my friend Annie, uh, who um, was a good friend at the time and constantly complained about the troubles of being a woman who is taller than six feet in our culture. Uh, there are all sorts of difficulties relating to that that I had never even considered. Um, because Annie was about my height, right? I'm 6'1", or between 6 foot and 6'1". We're about the same height. And for me, it's like, great. Like, this is the perfect height for a guy. Just over 6 feet means that you can still shop off the rack. Uh, you can still fit in cars. My friend Ryan, who's Dre from Bridge 4, uh, always complained that he can't quite fit in cars because he's 6'4 or 6'5, and there are some cars he couldn't fit in and things and sometimes couldn't buy off the rack. I could at 6 feet, um, but uh, so I wasn't too tall, but I wasn't too short. Um, you know, I, I just didn't have that sort of problem that comes along with being of a non-standard height in a culture that uh, fixates perhaps too much on it. I would, I would hazard to guess. Um, and so I thought about that. And I'm like, that's a cool attribute to talk about uh, that I've never done with a character. The rest of Serene is not Annie, right? The rest of Serene uh, grew out of what naturally the story needed and who she was and things like that. But that one little um, part of Annie became part of Serene. So I do that quite often. Uh, if I find someone just has an interesting conflict in life, I will go ahead and steal that and build a character around it. So uh, there are sometimes at writing conventions, you see people walking around with t-shirts that say, be careful, you'll end up in my book. I've always thought that, that was a nice t-shirt. And it is kind of a danger of knowing an author. <laughs> All right. As the years of your career have progressed, as the world and uh, your worldview has changed, has your Cosmere, your vision of a fantastic universe, become more defined, defined and detailed, or has the picture become muddled by shifts in perspective? Uh, most definitely the first. Um, I wouldn't say um, that the Cosmere has become more muddled. The more I've written, the more I've experienced, the more detailed and more interesting I think it has become. And unfortunately, the more stories in it I want to tell, uh, which comes back to the main theme of uh, what we're talking about. And so thank you for that question, Isabel, and whoever gave it to us, because that's right on theme. Uh, so I'll go back, uh, do a little bit more speech. No, we're going to do another reading before it's you, Isaac. Don't worry. There's four of these. So he was, he was, he's like, oh, is it my turn? Um, no, I, I'm, I'm going to talk more first. It's what I do. Um, so. We talked about that early part of my career. Uh, for those who don't know, I, I wrote 13 novels before I sold one. And the book I sold was Elantris 
fortunately for us all, because epic fantasy was my first love, and uh, Elantris birthed the Cosmere. Um, and so we are now here doing Stormlight because those terrible early books of mine didn't sell. So hallelujah. Um, probably the worst thing that could have happened for my career would have been if I would have sold one of those early books. Um, I, I, I sincerely believe that. Um, but um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the middle portion of my career. Kind of the, well, it's just the middle portion, the early part of my actual career. How about that? Because um, I, um, I sold Elantris, and that was one of those other big hurdles. The, the impossible thing that in the future, like someday I wanted to do, was someday sell a book. And when that one happened, I did not think, wow, that was easy. Um, in fact, when that one happened, I was like on my knees saying thank you. Because uh, for those who don't know the story, I just got a voicemail from an editor one day who wanted to buy Elantris. I won't go into the whole story. You can watch it uh, on my YouTube. I've talked about it. But I, was, I went through a hard part of my career writing these, some, some books that I thought were kind of mediocre. And then I wrote Way of Kings, and then I sold um, Elantris. Uh, and suddenly, possibility opened again, right? Suddenly, uh, I was a published novelist. And suddenly, I could do whatever I wanted. Um, and people would actually, it seemed, give me money for it. In fact, the next seven books I wrote, uh, which were Mistborn novels, Warbreaker, and uh, three of the Alcatraz books, all sold like immediately. Um, and each book I, I, I released with a little little deviation with Mistborn uh, that I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, sold better than the ones before. Everything was going great. Um, and at this part in my career, I really started to think um, about what did I want the scope of my, um, my life to be. And this is the time. Um, who was, Emily, do you remember who was there with us? Um, we're, were you even there? There was a dinner that I did at Outback Steakhouse uh, where I told people for the first time about Mistborn being nine books. And it would have happened in 2005 or 2006, probably 2006. Um, and I can't even remember who was there with me. Were you there, Isaac? It sounds really familiar. I feel like I, um, but I remember that one. And then uh, shortly thereafter, early 2007, I showed you the outline for the Cosmere. Uh, which you say you still have somewhere. We haven't been able to find it. Uh, um, but uh, I sat down and I drew out kind of a visual of uh, the Cosmere as I imagined it. This was when I was working on the, uh, the Mistborn trilogy and hadn't written it yet. Um, and we'll have to find that and see if we can publish it for people. Uh, you guys will probably find it interesting. I do know that uh, Dragonsteel was seven books um, in that outline, which I've since shrunk that one to three books because I've stolen so much for Stormlight. Uh, but it had Stormlight at uh, 10 books and Dragonsteel at seven books and uh, Mistborn at nine books. Well, Mistborn's probably going to be at least 13 
And Dragon Seal is probably going to be three. And that one would have had white sand novels that eventually we were doing as novellas rather than as novels. So it's going to just be interesting for you guys to look at. It probably has three books for Warbreaker, which I now feel is probably two. Um, but we'll, we'll try to pop that out. But that was all during the 2006, 2007 era um, of my life when suddenly everything was working and everything. And I, I started to be like, maybe I can actually do this. Maybe I can make it bigger than just writing and I, you know, the novels. Maybe I can bring this whole thing together. And I remember um, talking to my editor, Moshe, about some of the things I wanted to do. And he said, wow, you're ambitious. And I hadn't yet told him about the 36 book outline that I'd just done for the Cosmere. This was just for <laughs> pitching him on era two of Mistborn. And I'm like, oh, Moshe, oh, Moshe, you have no idea. Um, but it's actually kind of working. In that early part of my career, of my published career, things worked really well until The Liar of Partenelle. And The Liar of Partenelle is the first book that did not work um, of that career. I had had this happen to me once before. Uh, it's book number nine. I call it Mythwalker. Pieces of it ended up being uh, part of um, Warbreaker. But uh, this was my ninth book. I had tried writing it, and something just had felt off. Uh, honestly, uh, at the time, I thought, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself too much. There's something too similar about this story and w the one I just finished, which was Dragonsteel. Um, but either way, I'd given up on that book. The only book that I gave up other than that one in high school. Um, well, then I hit Liar of Partnell. This was my first no, I guess my second, my second stab after Dragonsteel at a Hoyd backstory. Uh, this takes place on Yolen, the kind of uh, original planet in the Cosmere named after Jane Yolen, um, and was involving how um, Hoyd became Hoyd. Uh, and all of those things with uh, many twists and turns that uh, I am not at liberty to discuss because I still someday want to do this. But it was really, it bothered me a ton that the book was not working. Um, and I soldiered through. I wrote the whole novel. It's 200,000 words long, which is about how long books that I wrote were back then. Uh, the long books were 200,000, and the short books were 50,000. Now the long books are 500,000, and the short books are 100,000. But, um, you know. Um, and the things that were 50,000 all just became novellas. Um, so, but I finished it. I soldiered through, but the book just wasn't there. Um, now, I had also had this emotion before with Way of King's Prime. Um, but with Way of King's Prime, I had always assumed I would find a way to fix it and release it. I just needed to do some revisions. Turns out I needed to rewrite the whole book from scratch, which is what I'm going to have to do with this one um, at some point. Um, but I wanted to read to you from this book, um, from the middle of the book, some of the early chapters I put up on my website. Um, I don't know if we'll ever release this book for people to read. Some of the other ones, like Mistborn Prime and Final Empire Prime, we are going to release. Dragonsteel we're going to release. This one, I'm not sure which ideas will end up in the eventual um, Hoyd backstory that I write. Uh, but there's a, there's a nice scene in here uh, that is very uh, indicative of kind of the things I do in writing. And it's indicative of this early part of my published career and the choices I was making. Um, because I was trying, at this point, to establish um, a legacy, right? I was trying to build something bigger than just 
um, a trilogy or some books or anything like that. I wanted the entire Cosmere to be a thing. Uh, and I think that is part of what really made this feel tragic to me was the fact that I had such lofty aspirations. And then the book just turned out to be mediocre. It's not a bad book, it's just a mediocre book. It's probably worse book, the worst book I wrote during this era. Um, worse than Way of King's Prime, for sure, um, and worse than the published books. And I couldn't stand for this important book to be mediocre. And so I never released it. Um, but I'm going to read to you um, a story. So the, uh, the lead up to this is in this world, um, there are two competing ecologies. There's something we call Fane and something we call Troon. Um, and in this region, uh, humankind, they basically can't live uh, in the Fane ecology. Uh, there's something called skull moss that grows over everything and changes the plants. Uh, they become poisonous. Um, and the animal flesh uh, humans can't survive on. And so at the, we are in a city that is surrounded entirely by Fane life. It, this, this, it's grown around, and there's a ring around the city. No one knows why it hasn't taken over the city. Um, and into this comes Midias, an apprentice light weaver um, who uh, has been tasked with helping the people of the city by a mysterious mentor figure um, that you're not going to find out about, but there will be some, some little clues. And he is brand new at this, barely knows what he's doing, um, and has been tasked with figuring out the mystery and trying to save the city before it falls to the fame. Uh, he has entered the city, shown off some of his powers, um, uh, had a different response from what he expected, and now he's found a, kind of a home in a, basically a soup kitchen um, for the poor that is run, uh, that they're the people who let him in. So, this is from The Liar of Partnell. I want an opportunity to perform a story for these people, Midias said. Rizal snorted, like you performed for the king with that dragon today? Midias frowned. They stood in the kitchen amidst Rizal's bubbling pots, Kale dutifully stirring one to the left. The man hadn't needed to be asked. Already the room was beginning to fill with unemployed people. They sat, staring at their tables, waiting to be fed. How do you know about the dragon? Midias asked. Rizal dumped a handful of spices into one of the pots. It's all over the city, Jesk. I think it was, in, in, it was incredibly poor taste to make the image eat an illusionary soldier. I did nothing of the sort. But you did create an illusion of a monster. Yes, Medius admitted, admitted. And now you want me to let you do something similar in here. Nothing so drastic, Medius promised. Just a simple story. Why? I thought you were here to save the city or something. I'm working on that, Medius said. In the meantime, I'd like to tell a story. I think it might help these men lift their burdens. Rizal stopped pouring spices. She folded her arms, looking up at Medius. Look, Lightweaver, she said. You think your lies are going to make these men happy? You think you can feed their children with a story? The Jesks failed us. Your master, he failed us. Wait, when was this? Before, Rizal said, waving a hand, when Torag took control from Theos' father. The Jesks tried to placate the people, tried to tell them that a new age was coming. They spoke of art and beauty. And you know what? Their king couldn't feed us. People starved by the hundreds. Why do you think we turned to Theos? Midias's frown deepened. He knew the story, the history, differently. Torag had killed Theos' father, true, but it hadn't been the Jesk's influence that had caused the problems during Torag's singer tumultuous year of rule. It had been the lack of alliances, poor trade instincts, and general unsettlement in the city. 
And yet, the Jeskes had supported him. That was part of the reason Theos had exiled them. Still, Rizal's version was skewed, or perhaps Midias's was. His master had taught him the past was very difficult to pin down. As fluid as river waters, he'd called history. What paints on a tapestry, mixing and melding in liquid form, creating images and scents that never remain stable. Rizal, Midias said, you suffer the philosophers, even though I can tell you think their talk is frivolous. Well, even if you see my stories as frivolous, I ask you to let me tell them. Bah, you're as bad as that God speaker, always pushing you to do things. Fine, tell your story, but only after you've served food during the beginning rush. Very well, Midias said. Though I do wonder why we even do it this way. Wouldn't it be faster to have the men line up and pass through to get their soup? These men spend all day waiting in line, Jesk, she said. They wait for hours, standing in the sun, hoping to be one of the few that gets a chance to work. I don't intend to make them wait here, too. Get to work. Midias took a stack of bowls and moved over to Kale's cauldron, filling two of them. You're good at getting what you want, Jesk, the soldier said. Midias shrugged. I would have thought that you'd be poor at that after living so long alone in the forest. I wasn't alone in the forest, Midias said, taking the bowls and turning. I had my master. It wasn't really an answer, but Midias didn't feel like giving the real answer. He'd always been good at making things he wanted happen. It was just the way that life was. The world worked as he wanted, save for the notable exceptions. Midias didn't let him dwell on that, however. He mourned over his master's death enough. He moved about, delivering bowls of food to the men. Even after only one day in the kitchen, the work became rote to him. That left him to think and consider, trying to decide the best story for the situation. His opportunity came soon, the tide of hungry men slowing. Medius approached Rizal, set, setting down an empty bowl, and met her eyes. Behind him, the sounds of dozens of wooden spoons scraping ceramic bowls echoed in the chamber. Rizal turned away and waved an indifferent hand. So, Medius turned and felt the increasingly familiar flutter in his chest. He grimaced. A man who had killed as many shouldn't have such, such doesn't feel such nervousness. And yet there it was, perhaps a sign that he was more human, that he'd often give himself credit. I've tried speaking about history, he announced to the room, and I was ignored. Some of the eating men paused, glancing at him. It was easy to make the, his voice carry with so few people talking. I've tried showing a monster, but I got the wrong reaction from that. I've caused enough fear in my life, and I did not come to Partnell to bring more. Minius put his hand out to the side and dropped a handful of dust. He wove the light into an image of a beautiful blonde woman wearing a blue crown. So, Midias said, sitting back on a stool, today I'll try a romance. Many of the men perked up at the appearance, though not a few muttered instead. I honestly didn't know a lot about romance myself, or I honestly don't know a lot about romance myself, Midias said, tossing a handful of dust to the other side, weaving the light into the image of a princely man with a copper crown. But then, neither have I ever met a dragon, but I can craft one from light well enough. Besides, I do know one thing. When it comes to romance, women are fickle, but men are fools. He smiled to the audience. Most of them watched him. However, they didn't respond as his master had indicated. When he called women fickle, he expected grunts of assent. And when he called men fools, his intonation should have garnered a few chuckles. He got neither. Minius moved on, throwing a handful of dust behind himself, weaving the light and blocking the sight of Rizal in her plots, pots, instead creating an image of a richly decorated room, complete with a bronze-rimmed looking glass and deeply dyed rugs. Now, this was a time before the coming of the Fane, Midias said. Many of my stories are from that time. 
It does us good to remember that our lives were once more than they are now. Lily was known in seven cities as the most beautiful to be born in some hundred years' time. Wives spoke of her when they washed clothing in rivers. Laborers passed news while they cut wheat in the field. Even children knew of Lily. Eventually, news reached Prince Helios, heir to the throne of Lion's Hill. Now, Helios was not a vain man, nor was he particularly demanding. He was, however, an inquisitive man. This news troubled him. What would the most beautiful woman in the world look like? How would she dress? What color were her eyes? How would she keep her hair? He asked after these things, but no one could give him a detailed answer. Another handful of dust produced a group of scribes and scholars speaking with Helios, who stood to his left. Lily, however, continued to comb her hair in the room to his right, looking into her mirror. It was a challenging illusion, and Midias felt himself being drawn into the image, transfixed by it. He found it hard to pay attention to the audience as he continued to speak. Helios determined that he would have to discover Lily's beauty for himself. Though his father, the king, objected, Helios left that day to ride for Nanhel, the, woman's, the fair woman's purported home. Helios' room dissolved and shimmered, transforming into an image of a prince riding on horseback. Even focused on the illusion as he was, Midias could hear cries of surprise from the men at the tables as they saw the prince riding atop a full-sized horse. The illusion remained steady, the horse staying in place despite its galloping, and Midas carefully added the faint sound of hoofbeats. Helios's road was long and hard, he continued, giving a slight image of rainfall to the illusion washing over the prince. And as he approached the city, Helios began to encounter crowds and large troops of men. He was not the only one who had come to see Lily's beauty. Indeed, from the processions he soon began to pass, he wasn't even the only prince who had come, though he certainly was the most poor and the most humble. He hadn't even brought a single manservant. His only companion was his trusted and aged bodyguard. What's more, so many had come to see this princess that they crowded in tents along the walls outside. Even every inn in the city was completely full. But Prince Helios was clever as well as inquisitive. He found an empty nook on the street, and there he began erecting a fine, expensive tent. The beggars who lived there were surprised to see one so rich pitching there, but the prince did not acknowledge them, instead chatting with his bodyguard and making up a story about how this street was the perfect location to view the princess when she went on her secret morning rides. Within a few hours, news had spread, and all imaginable kinds of people had crowded the street to stake a claim on space. Helios retreated to an inn and was able to get a room from one of those who had left in order to sleep on the street. As his faithful bodyguard bedded down on the floor, Helios sat by the window, pondering, and he spotted an old woman walking among those on the street, saying something that seemed to make people there angry. Her attitude intrigued Helios, and he sent his guard out to fetch the old woman. Midias threw out dust in front of him, creating the image of the old woman. He was completely engrossed in his own telling, prepared to move on to the old woman's warning that, the, that Princess Lily was cursed. As he began this part, however, the illusion wavered, Rizal cautiously poking through, causing a shimmering of sparkling dust to fall to the ground and shatter the back wall of Helios' room. Medius blinked, brought out of his own story enough to again become aware of the audience. Many of the men were muttering loudly, and some had left the room, leaving their soup behind. Medius shook his head, coming conscious again, his illusion disintegrating, people, objects, rooms, melting down into bits of dust. You've had your chance, Jesk, Rizal snapped. Stop frightening these men away. But the story, they don't care about your story, Jesk. Lies and feign illusions, what good are they? Feign illusions? You think what I do is feign? Well, it's not natural, I'll say that. Midius looked around, sensing the hostility in the faces of the watching men. 
Embarrassed, he stood, the last of his illusions exploding into dust behind him. Then he rushed from the room, moving to his chambers. Once there, he threw a handful of dust against the wall, summoning his master's figure. Medius's room was dim, since he'd brought no candle. Yet the aged light weaver formed from the dust, sitting on Medius's bed. You lied to me, Medius said. Well, I am a liar, the master said. So are you. We don't lie about important things. All of our lies are important. You know that. Medius turned away. They were supposed to welcome my stories. How often did you mention the joy that men find in storytelling? How often do you talk of lies and their power to bring emotion? They were supposed to love me, not revile me. Is that why you're here, Midias? To find love? Midias glanced at his master. So I should stop? Focus only on the corrupted? Ah, lad. Saving Partnell involves so much more than simply stopping the corrupted. These people, they live, but they no longer remember why. They eat with dull stares. They work the fields without laughter. They return home to their families, worried and frightened that they'll get sick, or that they will lose a child to the year of sacrifice, or that the true ring will finally collapse and leave them all without a home. There's little I can do about that. You can remind them that there is more to life than pain, fear, and sorrow. That's the true calling of a jest. You look to give them stories that have meaning, but the most important meaning of your lies has nothing to do with a moral has to do with the way that it makes people feel, not the way that it makes them think. They don't want to feel. If they can't see how it will feed them or bring them wealth, they don't want it. They revile it. They call it superstition or foolishness. They care nothing for what I offer. No, his master said. They do care, but they're afraid. Midius, this thing that you do, it is a noble and grand work. When you tell a story, you make men see through the eyes of someone whom they've never known. When they hear the tale of a widow's pain, for a moment they are that widow. When they hear a child's play, they remember what it was to be a child themselves. When they see a hero win, for a short time, they succeed as well. They may have forgotten what this means, but that is part of being human. Your duty, then, is merely to remind them. And there we go. We'll stop there. Uh, that is from The Liar Part. No. Um, Wearing its moral a little bit much on the sleeve for a scene that was about not teaching with morals, I suspect. Uh, but um, that book failed, and I never released it. But someday, I will have something more for you along those same lines. Um, right now, I'm planning to write uh, Hoyt's backstory after I finish Stormlight 10. So we've got a little bit of a wait first. Um, I am going to break now. and. Uh, Drink some water, and Isaac is going to take over, and he's going to talk to you about the art from uh, this book. And I'll be back afterward with two more readings for you. Okay, so we're going to blank the screen for a few minutes while we set up, but we will be back, so don't go anywhere. <laughs>